want to go back to you saying, do you, do we believe that these types of handcrafts will be around? It has to be around because this is an art, just like painting and drawing and every other type of clay work and pottery. Some of those things, they go in and out of style, but they always come back around. It's a thing that provides me peace of mind, the ability to separate myself from the chaos. And I know many uh, doctors and lawyers who knit specifically because it provides them that calm and the release and the counting that they need to be able to get through their next day. Knitted Together is more than a trite play on words when used to describe a group of mature women who meet weekly to make quilts and blankets and advanced projects. In a rural town in upstate New York, there's a group of seniors who call themselves the Material Girls who weave deep friendships and transparently share the ups and downs of their lives. They have lots of laughs as well from needling each other, but levity is only part of their story. They are skilled, and the treasures they create are lasting ones for everyone from newborns to newlyweds. Listen to them spin some yard right here on The Age Sage. Here's your host and the senior editor, Robert J. LaCosta. And welcome to part two of this two-part series with the Material Girls. On this episode, the senior editor starts off with a very important question about the future of quilting. Let's dive right in. What are the chances that a log cabin type store will be in existence in the year 2070? That's a really, really hard question. It's a tough business. You know, you really have to, to be devoted There are so many different fabric companies and fabric lines out there. It's it's very difficult to try to decide what you're going to carry in your store. You have to know your customer base. There are very few left in the area. Um, I mean, many, many years ago when we used to do a, a shop hop, which is a coordinated shopping, there were, I think there were 12 stores in the area that participated, and we're now down to seven. Mm-hmm. So it's a hard business. It's a business where it's not like a grocery store where you can put the product out on the shelves and people come in and buy it. People will see fabric in a fabric store and they'll say, wow, that's really beautiful, but what the heck do I do with it? So what we have to do as employees and as owners is we have to make sure that we have plenty of samples to show a customer what they can do with that particular project or fabric or pattern or notion. You know, I I specialize in hand applique. So I'm always looking for new products and new techniques to share Um, and also making samples. You know, we have log cabin rulers and pineapple. And so I did a lot of classes with that. But so it's a lot of work. Not only... For the shop owner, but the whole idea of quilting knitting has to be here in 2070. And do you think it will be? I do. I do. I think the way people are going to probably purchase fabric, I know I'm already seeing trends in the fabric industry where now the fabrics are being made digitally instead of being printed. So that's a huge change for the industry right there. 
There are fabric companies that have gone out of business. There's a, a book company that just recently went out of business. They specialized in crafts and quilting books. They just went out of business. A very popular magazine is just issued their last print version, and it's only going to be digital. So I do think that the demand is going to be there, but I think the delivery method is going to change. That's good news. I still think that there's, um, as I'm listening to you, I almost think there would be, not in a contrived way or manufactured way, but I think there would be a great potential for a group like this, even a one-on-one, for this to be kind of, you do it with your family, but I'm talking about mentoring. You know, I have a relative who's been a mentor. I was mentored by somebody. To attach yourself not just to the mentoring of a soul or a mind, but include something that brings a person along where you can also learn from what you're doing. Not just saying this is the kind of person you want to marry or this is the education you want, but something that actually brings you into their lives and they come into yours. And I can actually see that. I could see millions of these groups. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I think that if you look at our society today, kids are really struggling. Teens, college age kids. Isolation. The isolation that happened during the COVID pandemic. It really created a society that is plagued with quite a bit of anxiety. I am not good at meditation. It's just not my thing. But my crafting, whether it's knitting, crocheting, quilting, any type of those crafts that I'm working on, that's my meditation. I go into the room where I have all that. Sometimes I don't actually do anything. I just sit and I look at my piles. I I pat my... I touch my fabric. I do this. I'm just going to insert that everybody's shaking their head and patting their piles of fabric. Yeah. It's a thing that provides me peace of mind, the ability to separate myself from the chaos. And I know many uh, doctors and lawyers who knit specifically because it provides them that calm Mm -hmm. and the release and the counting that they need to be able to get through their next day just like wood woodworking it's it's a um, it's it's definitely a neural process i know with aging the neuroscientists have said you know if you want to be fresh and winsome don't do word puzzles do something you've never done before <laughs> because you if you keep doing word puzzles you're only going to get better at word puzzles but it's not that you can't do word puzzles but if you do something you've never done before that's going to challenge you And every one of these projects is probably so different that it's going to create different neural pathways. Well, I think when you were talking about mentoring, I think that's how I originally came to know these women. Um, I started a group at Log Cabin Fabrics for hand applique people. And Norma and Pam and Gail and Chloe, and there, there are some others who would come and go, come and go, but they were the core group, and they would come every month. And uh, Norma, the first time I met her at my applique group, had wanted to do a particular project at Log Cabin, but sadly we had sold out. So she went and she found another project to do, and she brings it into me the very first time that we meet. And I look at that project and I said, oh my, that's quite ambitious. (laughs) And it was, it was a very intricate, 
applique quilt, all hand applique. And explain, explain that term. Um, applique is when you take a piece of fabric and you shape it into a leaf or a flower petal, or and then you hand stitch it onto another piece of background fabric. So every month for, well, let's see. It started out like at five years and eight years and ten years. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but time. it was a long time. But anyway, every month Norma would come in with her quilt. And every month, Pat, would I be... What block am I on? How many blocks am I doing now? Yep, yep. And um, so we we did it together. Norma did an exceptional job. The quilt is absolutely stunning. And I am so proud of her for doing that and for having the stamina to keep going. And she hand quilted it as well, this huge quilt. So anyway, so I started, I feel, as a mentor for these women. And then it just, the relationship just evolved from there. Norma, can you tell us what made you think of that uh, particular project, the ambitious one? <laughs> I don't know. I probably saw it in a magazine, and then I ordered it in, as a kit, but I didn't know how to do it. And so I went to Pat, and I said, can you teach me how to do this? And she said, absolutely. And then she started shaking her head when I <laughs> And it did take a long time, but I loved every minute of it. How long did it take? Well, it depends on what day you ask me. Some days it's eight years. <laughs> but I did other things in between. I did the project that they were doing at the same time. And then she found the original quilt that I wanted to do, she found in the closet. It was an extra one that I wanted to do. So I did that one as well at the same time. Wow, this this is just amazing. No, I was just going to say that um, I think that besides being a support group, it's very inspirational and motivating. Yeah, there's a, some wonderful words that describe you know the emotions and the feelings that we have. But I like to think of it as uh, being therapeutic too. You know, it's uh, it's calming. It's it's this type of meditation when you if you're chain piecing for uh, you know. A lot of the baby quilts are small, but the other ones are pretty big. You could have 48, 36 blocks or whatever. And But it's great alone time. I mean, and, and it's productive, too, to see that you have this really nice object. And I love to hear the oohs and ahs when mm-hmm. I gifted a quilt. You know, it just makes you feel good. And uh, I started out giving... Well, first of all, I had a closet full of my finished quilts, and I just made it because uh, this one because of the fabric or that one because of the pattern. But then I decided, well, I just can't keep these to myself and shared them with uh, first my godchildren. And now I'm, I'm finding other special, you know, now that that's been fulfilled, that little way to give quilts away, now I'm giving them to other special people in my life. Yeah, you mentioned the the feeling you get when you gift something. Oh yeah, I mean, and and sometimes, um, like this last one that I gave away, that my cousin said, "Oh no, you can't give that to me. You should you should sell that. You should." I said, "But why would I do that when I know that this this makes you happy and it makes me happy in it in uh, return?" So. Um, I love the beautiful thank you notes that I get too. It sounds a little selfish, but that is that is part of the process, and I love that part. <laughs> One day, Chloe was going downstairs to collect 
a project that she had completed and she was going to bring it up to show us. And this is where the laughter that happens around this table is so therapeutic. Chloe left to go down to her sewing area and Pat went, ooh, ah. <laughs> and we like, we looked at her, my mother and I, what are you doing? And she says, I'm practicing for when she brings the project up. <laughs> That's hysterical. And we just, we laugh so much. And I think one of the important points you, I want to go back to you saying, do you, do we believe that these types of handcrafts will be around? It has to be around because this is an art, just like painting and drawing and every other type of clay work and pottery. Some of those things, they go in and out of style, but they always come back around. And there's new techniques, new ideas, new tools. When my father is working on a piece of uh, woodworking, the right tools make all the difference. And that's why these smaller quilt shops, that they have the expertise and the people who are figuring out what the new tools are and teaching you how to use them. And you can watch all the YouTube videos you want. But there's, you have to have some place that you can go and somebody you can ask when you run into a problem. It's much easier to see the project done. It gives you the inspiration that you need. I think one other thing it's important to notice, there's big box stores. There's lots of them that have fabrics. They're not the same. The quality of the fabrics that you get at a small boutique fabric store is head and shoulders above the other fabric. And if I'm going to spend hundreds of hours working on a project that I'm going to gift to somebody who is really valuable to me, I want to use a piece of fabric that isn't going to wear out in the next year or two. These quilts, some of these quilts that Pat talked about that are from the 1700s, they've been preserved. They are in museums because they are that. You take care of them, you know, you take care of them because they matter, because somebody put their heart and soul into that project. I've given something away before to somebody that didn't appreciate the work that went into it. That's hard. It's very difficult when somebody goes, oh, that's nice. Thank you. And they put it to the side. What about, just made me think of the Shroud of Turin. You're talking about something of extreme value. And if God gave us something, especially for the scientific mind, such as the Shroud of Turin, when you give somebody, it's really giving part of yourself, essentially, is what you're doing. And that's an indescribable gift. And if you sold it, you couldn't put a price on it, right? So when the person asked you, why don't you sell this? It's like, no. (laughs) There are people that do that as a business, to make quilts and sell them. Yeah, sure. But they're very expensive. (laughs) if, If they're doing it right. And and if we've given a quilt to a charity for an auction or something like yeah. that, you yeah. give it to them and you turn around and walk away. Yeah. You yeah. don't stay to see how much it gets auctioned off for because right. it's it's too heartbreaking yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Right. One time I donated a quilt that I made um and it was the technique that drew it drew me to it and the fabric. The fabric was printed with quotes from books, handwriting, stamps from like library stamps. It was really like a library type line. So after I finished it, I donated it to our, our library. And the man who won it wrote me the the nicest thank you note. I, I kept it. It's downstairs with my uh, my little treasures. But that was really, I thought, oh, how clever to donate it to a library. And then this man, he just was, uh, I don't know, he was more excited about that quilt than a lot of other people. <laughs> but yeah, 
donating them, I've done some to some charities. But again, I've gotten such nice feedback. I, I should I have minimum bids. <laughs> well, the one, I think there was a, a, some scrapping that was going on over this one. They, oh, they oh, both, yeah. two people wanted it. and it was well, that, that, That's uh, a good feeling. Only one I, person I, can I, win. I want to turn a corner on the knitting. I was holding my precious grandchild, and I didn't realize that the cap and the blanket were, were knitted by my granddaughter, so her big sister. So the 12-year-old had done that for the newborn. You know, I thought it was like one of these blankets that the uh, birthing hospital gives to you and find out it was my own granddaughter who did it, London. So what about knitting? Tell me a little bit about knitting. Well, I crocheted, but I always wanted to knit. It seemed like my favorite patterns were patterns that were knit. And then that one time when I was at the, at the quilt shop and I met Norma. I had my sister was in hospice, well, being treated for pancreatic cancer at the time, and had lost her hair. And um, I was looking for hats. She was she didn't like wigs, but she liked the hats. So I saw this one hat in a catalog, and it was like sixty dollars. And I, of course, I was expounding about this at the quilt class. Norma said, "Why don't you knit her one?" And I said, well, I'm left-handed, and nobody, everybody runs away from me after they volunteer to teach me, and they find out I'm left-handed. It's a done deal. It's over with. But Norma, she persevered, and uh, wow, she did a fine job, too. We made the hat. We made the hat, and I made a blanket. I don't know how many, uh, 30 blocks, and they were all different, and she's a wonderful teacher. How did you teach a left-hander? We face each other. <laughs> actually, actually, she knits right-handed. Oh, is that right? Well, but, but I she, don't know. But somehow or another, you taught her. Yes, I did. And that's a little mentoring right there. By the way, I should note that we've got people around the table, even as they're talking, they're doing it. So can I ask you this? Do you guys ever do this in front of the television, or is that just too distracting? I can't knit in front of the TV or pretty much we tease about I need to be in a closet because I can't have any distractions. It's just I'm not that gifted. At, I could crochet in front of the TV. Of course, the sewing, no. I always do that in my, at my sewing machine. Okay. I was just curious because I know some people, college students, some of the ones with the higher cumes uh, <laughs> tended to be able to do two things at once, whereas I was one of those guys who had to hold himself away in the corner. But uh, how about yourself? I usually piece or use my machine during the day, but at night I can sit in front of the TV and do handwork. I do hand applique, wool applique, or I'll do a binding, any kind of handwork. And you still get the jokes on the sitcom. I do, I do. It's you know, it's, uh, and I always have the TV on in my sewing room anyway. It's just the background noise. Yeah. Yeah, I can knit and watch TV at the same time. I can knit in, while I'm riding in the car. Not driving, but when I'm riding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> what kind of shows are you watching, seriously? Whatever Bob's got on the TV. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if there happened to be any inspirational stuff. I know while I'm writing, sometimes I listen to certain kind of music. And I actually, I am always doing more than one thing at a time, unless I'm 
What a shocker. I, I just am. I have, I struggle, I struggle to do one thing at a time. So if I'm at my sewing machine, I have my headphones in and I'm watching a Hallmark movie. If I'm in my chair in the living room, which my kids think I'm ridiculous, but, and I know the Hallmark movies, they're all pretty much exactly the same and they get into a turmoil and there's a seven minute resolution at the end, <laughs> which is therapeutic for me because life is not quite that way. But I can, I knit, I sew, I do any other types of things handwork when I'm in front of the television. I've got just a question as we start to wrap up here. What would be the first step in creating, say, a group like this? It doesn't have to be a cookie cutter of, of this particular group, but just something where it's more than just a do, doing. It's also a being, that sort of magical balance of being and doing. It's the magic of it. You can't plan it. It has to happen. But you have to reach out. You have to be willing to ask. And even even with social media, either go to your local fabric store or knitting store. There's people there. There's groups already there. Join one and see if it works, see if it meshes. And when you find somebody else that feels like a kindred spirit, say, hey, would you be willing to get together once a week? And they're like, well, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Can I bring Jane along? Can I bring? That's a great point right there. Many groups get together monthly, bi-monthly or whatever. You've chosen to do this for weekly. It's a monthly quilting. Once a month. At at the store. Yes. In addition. So uh, what's the magic of once a week versus say once a month? The consistency. And my calendar is blocked off for this day, as is every one of us. And if we're scheduling... It's rare for Gail is missing today. That's rare. And we miss her when she's not here. Mm-hmm. And we generally sometimes we'll FaceTime if she happens to be up at camp or on vacation, we'll FaceTime that person. And uh, but the consistency is key because the minute you try to change it to a different day or time, it falls apart frequently. We did FaceTime during COVID. Chloe, Chloe sat here. <laughs> and, and during COVID, how long did it take you to get back together? About a year or so, or maybe more or less? No. As soon as we, as soon as we could, I think we even wore masks at first. Yeah. Okay. Um, what were you going to say about the weekly? I was going to say that I think this works because, or one of the reasons that I think this works is that we don't just all have things in common, but there's no ego. You know, we don't have to be quiet while she speaks or we have to listen to all of that about her. And it's like we're all, it's like a unit. Yes, no competition. Exactly. And it's, I get envy of yeah. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's. Dragon envy. Now I got a new term. It's just honest <laughs> and open and, you know, no hidden agendas, anything like that. Because that would just be more work, you know, and. We can have work the rest of the week. We don't need that here. And I mean, nobody's nobody ever has been told not to do this or that. So, but I think that because we're just one unit, you know, there's no star. No, it, we're all stars. <laughs> it, it, we're all stars. It, could this uh, be applied to men? Not necessarily no. uh, <laughs> quilting no, or knitting. No. But could men really literally no. what do you think, be, well, I'm just wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning the McDonald's club, you know, the guys who are yeah. retired and they go down to McDonald's, but you know, I, I can't see them wearing their hearts on the sleeve when there's a, a, another table right next door. We have said more than once that you know, we just love our time together so much that we feel bad that 
men don't have that kind of camaraderie that we feel here. Mm. We don't think, you know, they do. Maybe I think women need women and men don't. The same way. Men don't, men don't need women? No, men don't need men. <laughs> <laughs> men need women. Boy, oh boy. And I, I've seen that working in the aging field like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, I think women tend to be more relational. It's such a boom in the gender differences, that's for sure. You know, we've talked about some of the lighter stuff. When the going gets tough, you guys are still meeting. So nobody's hiding. Nobody's skipping a meeting because something bad is going on in their life. I don't think we'd allow it. (laughs) We'd pull them in. Well, when things are going bad, if somebody can't be here, we're with them. We we do communicate with them. We touch base with them. It's a touchstone. Yeah. We go to the funerals. Mm-hmm. of the other people's family members. We show up at the hospital. We do what we have to do in order to support the other people, not just around this table. And we're not ashamed to call them and say, I just can't get there today. I've I've hit a wall. I just can't do it. And we will pray for each other. Yeah. How does your faith blend with all this? <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly. Well... I, I just think that we have a great equilibrium, a good balance. We don't overstep. We don't understep. You know, we try to keep it right with all of us. Everybody's important, equally important. You really got like a sisterhood going on here. You know, when people are young and they tell each other everything, they, my girls used to sleep in the same bed. They had bunk beds, but they'd climb down and fall asleep next to each other, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think there's anything we hide from each other. It's wonderful. I could keep going, but it's time. I'd like to say thank you to uh, each of you. And for our listening audience, I would strongly recommend that if you have a hobby or uh, something that you can do with somebody, there's um, some magic balance between doing and being. And that's uh, it is some sort of hood whether it's sisterhood or brotherhood. I thank you very much for allowing me into your sacred space. I I can tell (laughs) it's it's sacred, and this is an exception, but um, this is a wonderful exception. Thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in right here to The Age Sage to part two of the two-part series with The Material Girls. Do check out all of the other incredible interviews on The Age Sage on any major podcast platform. It's The Age Sage with the senior editor, Robert J. LaCosta. Costa.